to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Thank you for coming this morning. Um, this is always a uh, uh, Sunday when it has weather coming in like this that where the churches have to make that call. And so it can be a uh, time when you uh, decide to cancel. And then a lot of people, especially when we've been in larger churches, um, then they're all frustrated and they're going, hey, why did you guys cancel? You know, it wasn't that bad or the roads weren't even that bad. It snowed a lot or um, that it really uh, didn't come down at all. Or if you um, don't cancel and then uh, you have church, then a, a lot of people, they can have little ones that are sick and different things like that, things like that. So it can be uh, a difficult Sunday to navigate. But um, we're glad you joined us this morning. And as we're going through January, we're going to be looking at um, uh, that, that t- idea of what really matters most uh, as, a, as, a, as a church body. And we're going to get into next week some more specifics fitting for uh, Sojourn Church. Um, and so, so if you've been visiting or if you've uh, just started coming, um, we want to look at some of the um, uh, core identities and kind of the DNA of Sojourn Church. And so we're going to be doing that next week and then next week. And then um, the first Sunday in February, um, we're going to have one kind of closing time. We're going to go through our church covenant and kind of read through that. And then also um, have a little bit of corporate prayer time. So um, that will be on um, the um, fourth of, I think it's the fourth of February, um, and we're, we're that Sunday beforehand. If you remember, we're going to have a true corporate prayer time before the service. Just wanting to start once a month, having a time to gather together, um, just to pray. And so um, that'll be the fourth Sunday in uh, January, January twenty eighth, and we're going to do it at nine a.m. So that means we're going to come and set up probably Saturday night, or if we have to uh, do at eight o'clock, set up for two or three of us to do it at 8 o'clock, and then to be ready to pray at 9 o'clock. And we'll pray from 9 to 9.50 um, at uh, our former church. Um, after I'd been there for about a year, I kind of just threw that idea out because the, the church that I was at before that, over in Tahlequah, um, we um, had went for two or three years, and we just kind of started looking at uh, Mark Dever and some of their uh, work on the church, had some really good foundational things on some solid practices. And so we just kind of, uh, me and another guy just kind of suggested for the elders at least, just the elders of the church, to meet together. And we started it like uh, two Sundays a month. And then we, we moved after about you know six or eight months to where we were doing, I think, weekly, and then to where we were actually had the list of the members, and we were praying over all the members of the body. And so then we got to our church in New Beginnings, and same thing after about a year. I mean, you got a lot of you guys know Mike Krebs, who's overseas. Um, we kind of started talking about, hey, what if, we, uh, what if our pastoral team there and the elders, they had a separation of pastoral team and elders. That's not real biblical, but it was the, just the, the terms pastor, elder is synonymous in the Bible. But the, we had a pastoral team, and their church government at the time, they've changed it now, was set up to where if you're a pastor, you could not be an elder. And, I was, and so when they were you know, sharing with, that, with me like week one, I was like, so this is like schizophrenia in the Bible. And so uh, we were like, uh, 
pastor, is elder, is shepherd, um, synonymous in the Bible. And so um, we started a prayer time, and man, it was just life-giving. And so you had you know, 8, 10, 12 guys in there. Um, and so and we did it for from 6 to 8 um, every Sunday morning for over 18 months. And so just some beautiful things. And so you go, hey, so did that make the church boom to 5,000 people or three? No. Uh, did you have you know tons of salvation? We had salvations and baptism, but um, God was actually doing a restructuring of the church and, and kind of a revitalization process. And that prayer laid the groundwork for some of those changes and things that that went on. And so uh, it's a beautiful thing. So um, that's why we want to pray. That's why we want to uh, spend time uh, together in the Word, the, the corporate body doing that. So um, again, that will be um, every third Sunday usually, from February through December, unless we have to modify that, that'll be every third Sunday at 9 a.m., um, and we'll go from 9 to 9.50. Um, but this month, because of our um, our rearranging of the corporate um, renewal in February 4th, we're going to do it the fourth Sunday instead of the third Sunday. So I know that's confusing, but I'll have some um, reminders for you. So as we're looking at this, today we're going to look at this idea of a faithful gospel presence. Um, I want you to think through that, uh, faithful gospel presence, um, and why that's necessary and essential. So we're going to talk about that idea, faithful gospel presence. Um, The idea of this in our current cultural setting is um, who will take the baton and then what is the baton being passed? So if, if you don't know what a baton I'm talking about, like in, in relays, so if you watch the Olympics or any uh, track events, uh, the uh, relays are a, a big event. And so it does not matter if you've got Tariq Hill on your team, right? If you've got um, Hill and some of his Miami Dolphin partners, um, if you've got the fastest guys, it does not matter how far you are ahead of, of the other guy, if you don't um, make a good handoff if there is any kind of pause or hesitation and you don't make a good handoff or secondly if you completely drop the baton um, it's over like you you'll, the fastest guys will get beat on a relay by a lesser team a weaker team if the handoff of that baton is not done and so you see those guys they practice they get their steps down and they measure it out they'll put tape on the track so if you haven't if you ever, haven't ever ran a relay it's this this part is the essential part. You, you got to run fast no matter what. But um, as you take off, you're st- you start running. You want to be to. I, I think they want to be at like 95 percent when they reach back and grab and, and they have to place that uh, baton. Now I've seen guys uh, just this last year where little things happen where a hand goes out here or the other guy the other guy's thinking he's going he's going to stick his right hand back and guess what the guy that's running and has the baton did he did a reach with to the left side of the guy. And so you, can't, you also can't get outside the lane. So there's all kinds of little bitty essential tiny details about passing the baton. But it's also significant looking, what is the baton that's passed? Um, so um, you've got to really think through that. And we're going to use that kind of metaphor looking at this week at um, where the church is at in America. You hear me talking about that a lot. And where, where the church is at in America and the different batons that are being passed um, what is the message or the version of Jesus or the version of church that's being passed along? Because we've got to think through, what will the church look like in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? We're going to get into some of that stuff. So today's a little bit different sermon. It's, it's kind of, again, like last week, kind of big picture. Last week we looked at identity, big picture identity. 
Um, what does it mean to have my identity wrapped in Christ as a new creation in Christ, a new creature that, that the Holy Spirit has recreated? So last week, that's what we looked at and how the Spirit uses the gospel to recreate and bring new life. Uh, salvation uh, is where we have our true identity. And that's going to be your true identity here on this earth and also going into eternity, right? Um, so as we looked at that, Last week, January is a great time to take some assessment to look at where is your heart at with Christ. And we're going to be stressing for the next two or three weeks, hey, where is your heart at with the church? Um, coming to this Sunday service is not the whole point, right? Um, going deeper into relationships and discipleship, that's where real accountability and real true deeper discipleship go. Every one of us, every single person here could be a bank robber today, Right? We could be a, uh, someone who's just you know, stealing cars today. We could be someone who's um, running all kinds of uh, deeds for the mafia, right? You can come in, you can shake hands with people, you can shake their hand and smile, sing a couple of songs, listen, leave, and, and go back to your mafia job. What, what, you can't do that if people are in your life throughout the week and people are um, asking you questions about your faith and challenging you and you're, you're living life-on-life life discipleship. And so um, about... 85% of true, deeper growth discipleship, not only does it happen outside of a, a church service, but it happens even outside of a small group to where it's, it's going further into life-on-life life stuff, to be able to hold each other accountable and to see growth and for, for people to be able to share where they're really at. Um, the next couple of weeks, I'm trying to hit on this. Um, Jamie and I have been um, just surprised in a good way, but surrounded by, I, I bet there's been over six to seven to eight couples in the last year that have said, man, there's no place that you can be honest about raising teenagers. Like, it's, there's just not a lot of support for that. Uh, once they get out of the preteen stage, so just to be able to talk about it, just to be honest about how difficult it is. And then that doesn't mean that your kids are off the rails or, you know, leading a drug force or something like that. It doesn't mean that they're off into all kinds of horrible sexual immorality or anything, but just something, it could be just attitudes. It could be just um, obedience. It could be um, just uh, expectations. It could be their school. It could be um, their, the way that they're talking to other people, all kinds of things. And, and parents are afraid to admit that because, you know why? Because they're afraid that people will judge them for, well, you're not doing a good job. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done this. You should have done it our way. You should have done it our way. And so parents are afraid. And so um, there's not a place where people can be honest about that, about life, about marriage, about um, single uh, singleness, uh, just about like, here's the struggles of that. Here's the struggles of marriage. Here's the struggles of my workplace. Um, a lot of people are in, a, in an area where sometimes the political affiliation influence the workplace, um, all kinds of dynamics from political correctness and all these other things want to kind of crunch in and tighten in uh, to where now your job that you signed on for five years ago is completely changing the way that you interact with people in a way that sometimes is very unbiblical. And that's, that's hard. There's no place to talk about that. And so how do you re remain a faithful gospel presence in that situation? And so last week we looked at Galatians 2.20. Um, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17. I have those up on the board, but we're not gonna, um, I'm not going to teach out of those, uh, but reference those great places to look at the new creation in Christ. Um, so this new identity is where we see true saving faith. We also looked at Acts 17, and we're going to go back, back to Acts 17 because it's a crucial point for the church. Um, but also we looked at Acts 1.8. Before Acts 17, obviously, Acts 1.8 is where Jesus has already died on the cross. 
and then he's resurrected. He's been on the earth for 40 days, and he's about to lift off um, into heaven. So this is talking about after the resurrection, and he's spent time with his disciples. They know he's truly the Son of God, and he's going to ascend to heaven, and then he gives them those marching orders, um, and they're asking, hey, now are you about to restore the kingdom? Is now when you're going to bring in your forces? We see that you're the true Messiah, we really want things to change. It really stinks being oppressed by the Romans. And so the Jews have went through this repeatedly, right? And they're like, hey, right now, we see you're the Messiah. You're this powerful militaristic leader. And Jesus is going, that wasn't what I was doing here. I wasn't setting up a political or a uh, militaristic force. It's, it's, a, it's a force of love that I come. Have you not understood what I've been doing? And so then he's, he's going to share with them about what their lives are going to be about. And he says, um, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power. So you know Acts t- chapter 2, the, the Pentecost happens. And so as the Holy Spirit comes on you in power, it was not just, just for what a lot of times in Tulsa, people will kind of focus on is it's not just about speaking in tongues. The tongues were a sign to get attention to the message. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power, and he's talking about the word dynamos right there, is about a bold proclamation with power from above. So when you talk about the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to convict people of sin, it's going to change them to where they want to repent from sin and turn to God. And the Holy Spirit's going to blow new life and breathe new life into their souls. That's what's going to happen. That's Acts 1.8. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, crazy area. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where they just killed Jesus, you know, four weeks ago. I don't want to be a witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. Can I go somewhere else? Hawaii sounds good. And so they speak English there. And so that, that's a good deal, right? And so not um, just Jerusalem, but it's going to spread from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, enemies, and then to the uttermost parts of the world, to the ends of the earth. And so that Acts 1a is a huge launching pad, launching pad. In Acts 17, we saw that God designed the exact times and the exact places where you would be born and where you would live. So um, for, for young children, for, for kids, for teens, for, te- for, for preteens, there's a natural part of us sometimes that wants to kind of just rebel and find our identity. And, and, and the world tells you right now to look inside yourself to find your identity, to look inside your own heart. The Bible never tells you to look and get guidance from your own heart. The Bible tells you that, it, that your own heart will mislead you and misguide you. In fact, there's evil schemes, evil ideas. So what, what do we turn to then? Well, if I don't look inside myself, I want to look at culture. I want to look at YouTube. I want to look at the world out there to see what I want to be like. That's not your true identity. You will spend the rest of your life searching and searching and searching, trying to be this or be this or be this or be this, instead of understanding your true identity. Man, God created me. Now, it starts out, every one of us, we are separated from God. We, we are, in our sin, we are separated from God. Even though we are, uh, uh, what people would say, a child of God because we are uh, children of Adam and Eve, right? We're all humankind, but we are separated because of the sin. So we have to go back to the first step of reconciliation. And that's what we see there that he's making clear is that the very first step of, that we need to have in our identity is that new creation. Like Galatians 2.20, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know, John 3.16, all those verses talked about. So your new identity wrapped up in that. So as we look at that, we, we see that there is tied to salvation, not just I get out of hell. And so my generation, so you younger kids haven't been through this yet, but my generation was you go to youth group all the time, and then they'd have these two or three different um, big events during the summer or winter, and, and that have dogs 
McAllister in, or they'd have a big speaker, and there'd be 3,000 youth there, 4,000 youth there, or you'd have a big church camp, and the whole goal was built towards, um, you know, cry night on Thursday night, where uh, just they cleared out the chairs because everyone would walk down the aisle and, and bow their head, pray this sinner's prayer, and then everything's good. And then a lot of people in America have done that, that process. Um, they, they've walked down aisles. There's this learned thing that hit in the 1900s. Um, Charles Finney was the guy that started it, uh, where, where you could actually count. So everyone bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand if you follow after me. And so that was not done beforehand. Churches didn't do that. They didn't have the, the, the weighty altar call. And so in that, um, they, they just preached the Word of God. They trusted the Holy Spirit would do that. There's nothing wrong with calling people to have an altar call. I, I would love this, and so some of this, you, this might scare you, but I would love to have at times when, we're, when the Scriptures are leading us to that, and we believe the Holy Spirit's leading to that, we want to have prayer times where if there's people that need healing, that people that have something going on, that it could be some sudden things that they're going for. In the same way we pray corporately for forgiveness and for renewal, we want to ask the Lord, so we're, we're a continuing is church that we believe those gifts have not ceased to where um, people can be healed. Um, I'm not a healer. What, what changed with the, the dying off of the apostles was that after the apostles, there was not as many self-proclaimed healers for like 1900 years. Tulsa is known as a healing area, right? So we, we know that some of the different schools and different the schools of thought and, and churches here believe that you know, I, I could be a self-titled healer. And so um, we, we don't go along with that, but we do believe that God is still in the business of healing people. Now, there is churches that would where we could still um, believe very much close to the same things, and they would say that God is not healing people anymore, that that died off completely. Um, God is not healing. God is not working any of the miraculous gifts, and that's called a cessationist. The gifts have ceased on those things. And so um, some of those churches uh, that we would love and agree with on the gospel, um, they might have just different stances on that. And so cessationist versus continuationist. We want to be able to pray and, and ask God to do those things. Um, and, and, and in that, we want to be a place where we're, we're asking the Spirit to guide us, to lead us. Um, as a, a, a church, um, we want not only to be, look at the time that God has us placed here, um, but we want to say, why are we particularly in this area? Um, as, we, as we were praying and praying and praying, and God began to lead us back into church planting um, over five years ago, um, this whole area right here, about a you know, two or three mile area around Peoria and 61st, um, there's not a lot of churches that are trying purposely be in this area. Um, that doesn't mean you have to live specifically in this area, but we want to be light in an area that's been overlooked. It's been overlooked as far as resources in the city. Um, you can look around and see some of the poverty that's here. So you got half a mile over, you have a, a, a two billion, a two million dollar house, and then you could have a house just you know two blocks over that that, that literally they're doing for twenty five dollars a month, for fifty dollars a month. And so we want to be a church to where the CEO that's living in the two million dollar house is sitting on the same pew with a person that's either, may not have a home or maybe living in fifty dollar a month, and they love each other the same. Only the gospel of Christ can do that. Only the gospel of Christ can bring people together beyond those socioeconomic um, levels to where there's not this um, heavy-handed, I'm always the giver to you. But no, we're, we're brothers in Christ. We're sisters in Christ. That's difficult to do in our day and age. That's very difficult to do in any setting. But we believe that God has kind of landed us in, in this area. And so um, identity in Christ bases, is based off of this idea of not only the scriptures we already looked at, but Matthew um, 22, the great commandment and the great commission. So Sojourn Church wants to have as directive um, 
verses, the, the great commandment. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, there's a couple of places I'd love to talk to the Zomies since we're renting this space. They've taken older buildings like this and they've um, painted the bricks black. And then they, it's really, they have love your neighbor real big across it. And so I, I, if it was my building, I would do that immediately. Just to make a statement that, that, that I, I want that to be part of the identity. Love your neighbor. And love God, love your neighbor. Just, and it, it re- looks really cool. Again, I don't get to do that. If we also look at Matthew 28, go and make disciples. You add those things together where we're intentionally seeing that the Lord has brought us in to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, that's a beautiful thing. And, and what do you tell us about that at the front end? I have all authority in heaven and earth. So on that, he's saying there may be people around you think there's no way that they can be reconciled to God. You probably got some family members or some neighbors or some coworkers. You're like, man, this one, I, I don't know that God could ever save them, right? And he's saying, no, I can. The power of the gospel, I can save them. And so we want, that's, that's part of that faithful gospel presence. You can't leave one of those things out. You've got to be faithful and continuous in this, but what you bring is the gospel. And then you've also got to be present in people's lives. And so all three of those, faithful gospel presence. Um, while we're trying to be here is to be a faithful gospel presence. Uh, beyond ethnicity, beyond socioeconomic status, beyond people's backgrounds, what they've come out of, um, lifestyles, uh, sexual orientation. We say, hey, come in, listen to the gospel, and we're trusting the Spirit will open your heart to this. And we're going to love you and love you and love you and communicate truth to you and at the same time show grace because that's what our God has done to us. So Matthew 22, the great commandment, and then Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Um, so as we look at that, this is why identity in Christ and a faithful, faithful gospel presence actually creates opportunity in a culture that much of the church world has been really, really freaked out about over the last two or three years. If you've noticed the, the, all the social media stuff, uh, churchy uh, people, just all kinds of defense and all kinds of conspiracies and all kinds of th- thoughts going out. And so we, we, can, we can be okay. The Lord is not surprised by this. There are places all over the world where it's much, much worse. Um, and so we've got to have some, some understanding of what's going on in our culture. And we've got to look at this idea of what is, it that, um, what is it that has dropped the baton? Why is there this fallout in culture? Um, there's some big factors. I'm going to spend the rest of this year, I'll try to bring some of those different things out. But here are just some, some big baseline things. Uh, I think I have a slide up there. This is how the, the, the baton got dropped. First of all, just a, a confusion, a deception on saving faith. There's been a confusion and some deception misleading on what is saving faith. And then um, that has led to some the current spiritual state of decline. And when you have a whole bunch of people, number one, first one there, that think that they're Christians and they're not really Christian at all and just have these philosophies, I'm trying to live a good life, trying to be the best person I can, that's not Christian. That's Hindu, that's Buddhist, that's Muslim. It, it, it's, it's not Christian, Right? And so the idea of I'm trying to be the best I can, I'm trying to um, just do the best job I can, trying to live a good life, that's not Christian. Christian is I couldn't do that. I needed someone who would do that for me in my place and who would die on the cross for my sins first. And then I have new identity and now I'm following after this guy who died on the cross. That's Christianity. We have the difference between a guy uh, who would say that, you know, he's a, a prophet 
uh, last prophet, a different religion that says, now you work your way towards the deity and maybe you'll be good enough. All other religions and ours says you'll never make it to that God. Your God had to come down and save you and rescue and redeem you himself. And so that's the difference. Um, so there's confusion and deception on saving faith. And that leads to where there's just a spiritual decline. So Christians in the church have looked around at, especially the, the, the coastline. So, so the Northeast, New York, and, and the, uh, California culture, uh, the Northwest, Seattle, all that. And they go, man, what's wrong with our country? I thought our country was mainly Christian. Well, it wasn't. But, but people are, have been under that delusion that it was mainly Christian. Um, and then now they think, well, how did it get this bad? Did everyone just stop going to church? No, it's because people that, that assume that they were Christians, even the Bible Belt, really were not Christians. The lost were the lost. Again, if you go to California, when Jamie and I were out there and we would read statistics and we lived out in Pasadena for a couple summers, if you were to say to them, hey, one out of 10 people are believers, they would laugh in your face. If you live in California, like, it's not one in 50 are believers. You know, like, there's no way. If you go to Seattle, you go to Oregon, you go to New York, no way. If you said one out of 10 are Christians, they're like, there's no way. And so, um, and, and you say that here and people are like, oh, it's way more than that. You know, my mom loved to kind of think that like nine out of 10, 9.5 out of 10 were, were actually believers because they had good hearts. You know, they listen to country music. They, they're good hearted people. They, you know, I, I know he's doing this and this and this and this and this, and she's doing this and this and this and this and this, but they're really good hearted people. That doesn't, that, that's not Christianity. And so it, it's an under, uh, misunderstanding about saving faith. The current spiritual state of decline comes from that. And then the third thing is um, it, it leads to a gospel opportunity. There's a clarity that's happened. Um, so I'm, I'm often telling you what is happening across America. And so sometimes I'll have people like, you know, like, man, I just don't see all the fallout in church. I'm telling them how many numbers have fallen out. And they're just like, they're, they're, they're looking at their own church situation. Like, man, we had three new families come last week and join our church. I'm like, I'm talking to you about across the, the, the spectrum of the United States in particular. Um, but then Oklahoma is always one of the states that's a little bit slower. Those things hit us later on. It's already hitting the, the nuns, which is N-O-N-E-S. Um, the nuns, the people who would say, I do not uh, affiliate or I do not identify as a believer, um, has gr- is outnumbered. That, that growing number of nuns who say, I, I'm not a Christian, has grown more than cr- the, the number of salvations in the state of Oklahoma for over 20 years. Tulsa, a million people in the Tulsa and the surrounding areas, one million people. Nuns are outgrowing the number of people in churches coming to church in Tulsa. So that surprises a lot of people. It's a good reason to plant churches, right? Um, churches, that 85% of churches are in decline, meaning that they're not seeing any kind of growth. Um, if they do see growth, it's, it's usually transfer growth. So um, this leads to a great gospel opportunity. Um, so that's some of the factors we're going to be talking about. Now, um, what happens in this situation is that's going on in different areas is that it, it affects the... Um, relational, the religious, and the cultural norms that were around. So think through relational, someone that you've kind of been working with, even someone in your church, and then all of a sudden this thing comes up in culture on, you know, could be social media, could be a situation that happens out there in some city, and now we're kind of divided. And we don't know why. I, I, I didn't know you believed that. I didn't know you thought that. Well, hey, I, I heard this thing over here. I had this guy working. He told me, actually, here's what's going on. The Chinese, they're the ones doing it. Hey, the Russians, they're the one. Hey, did you know this? I heard this. 
And so now we go, and like, man, that, that's weird. That's weird. And so what begins to happen relationally, and then the religious uh, circles begin to have fractures in it. And then culturally, you've got people polarized. The polarization is now going beyond. So now they're writing stories not about polarization, that the polarization has come, and now it's become destructive particularly destructive to um, relationships and, and organizations. Not, not just churches, but churches as an organization also. So when you look at that, there's this deconstruction going on, this deconstructive dropout. What happens is people begin to say, well, if you can't agree with me on this, I don't know that we should go to the same church. That, you've seen that in Oklahoma. If you don't agree with me on this, I don't know that we can go there anymore. Or I don't know that you should go there anymore, right? Um, now, again, I'm not saying that this is especially not our small church plant congregation, uh, but it hap- it's all over Tulsa, but it's especially all over uh, the different parts, and it is coming more and more here. Uh, again, we've got a political situation going on. Um, uh, remember in your psychology classes, the... Uh, um, Rorschach inkblot test. So my, my undergraduate is mental health psychology. And so remember the Rorschach inkblot test? They'd put the ink on there and they would put the pages together and they would open it up and they'd like, so what do you see there? And so they're not really expecting you to be able to say, well, like I see three points of why I should eat at McDonald's and not Arby's. You know, like that, that, that would be interesting. But if you begin to, if, the, if someone starts to look at that and go, here's what I see there, and they begin to define all these things, it's an identifier that you might be a little nuts because there's not anything there, but like you're like, I see that if I start digging a basement under our house and then start bringing my coworkers there and putting sheets over there, like, hey, ding, 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 we, we got one over here. We need some pills, right? We need some help here. So the Rorschach inkblot test, uh, we just had one of those in America, January 6th, right? So January 6th, the pandemic. Great, beautiful pictures of a Rorschach inkblot test where, where people began to interpret what's going on there. So, so beautiful on January 6th, you got some people going, looking at that and going like, oh my gosh, that is one of the worst terroristic things that they're taking away our democracy. They're destroying our democracy. They're tearing down our country. You got people on the other side going, man, those patriots, they're protecting our democracy. They're prote- Right? And you got that happening inside a church, inside families. Rorschach, Inkblot, great thing to, how do we interpret that? Uh, the pandemic, same thing. Those, those are things that are happening relationally, religiously, culturally. People are getting these stances. Um, there's a misunderstanding in churches um, on tier one, tier two, and tier three issues along with that. So tier one, and some of you have studied this, some of you have never even heard of this. So tier one would be the, the basic principles of salvation. You have to believe these to have true salvation. So is Jesus the son of God? And somebody says, ah, we're not really sure, I don't think so. He's a good prophet though, good guy, taught good lists, and I'm trying to live by his list, but I don't believe he actually died for sins. Man, that's not salvation, is it? That's not saving faith if that's your stance. Right? You can't have faith in a guy who did not die for your sins. And so um, salvific things are tier one. Um, is Jesus the Son of God? Is this, are the Scriptures inerrant? Are the Scriptures um, uh, completely authoritative and, and they are our um, truth from God Himself? Um, is there inerrancy there? Is it inspired? Um, the resurrection. Those are tier one 
things, matters of salvation. Tier two are usually matters of um, conscience. So, and so Southern Baptist Convention, the majority of them are not led by elders, they're led by deacons. Some people, as a matter of conscience, because of what they see in the Scripture, would say, I don't want to go to a church that is not elder-led, that's led by deacons. Because I understand the word deacon to me, servant, take care of the physical needs of the church. I understand elder, and that that term to be the spiritual leadership of the church. I want elders and deacons. I see that biblically. I I can't go to a church that doesn't have elders and deacons. So, So that's something you go, hey, it's not salvific, Right? People can go to a church with only deacons or, or no deacons or a church that has only elders and no deacons or elders and deacons. You can go to any of those churches and still be saved, right? That's not foundational on the gospel, but it's a matter of conscience. Um, for some people, that, that goes into infant baptism. Um, and some phenomenal Presbyterian uh, teachers out there. But do, they say, hey, we're going to baptize, we're going to sprinkle your child. Well, scripturally, you might say, you know, I see... Uh, believer's baptism. You don't get baptized, and, and baptism is immersed in water, and it's a picture that, 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 uh, of, of the gospel, just like the Lord's Supper. And so if you're baptizing infants, I can't go to that church. I, I think you're a believer. I see your love for God. Maybe you're, you're a stronger believer than I am. I just can't go to a church that practices that. Does that make sense? Tier two. So issues of conscience. Um, but it's not about salvation, but maybe significant things um, that for, for different churches. Um, and then tier three could be matters of preference, worship songs, dress codes. So um, some of you have been places where you have to dress a certain way. Um, you have to um, wear certain things. Uh, it could be on uh, things like alcohol or uh, the use of movies or uh, entertainment things, to, to be able to dance or not. I mean, all those things. And so, and so you might go, hey, that, that's just a preferential thing. Um, and so we got to be careful there because there's a lot of things that um, a lot of people have taught or been taught that, that things are sin when the Bible doesn't actually call it sin. So the point with all that is when things are escalated, our emotions, our feelings, our stances, and there's anger and fear there, Christians are trading in unity in Christ for division on tiny lesser matters. And so our type of church says we don't want to do that. We're not going to go far over here to the outliers and be, be, be this... Um, stands over here rigid on these things. We're not going to go way over here and be loose and just, oh, can't we just love Jesus and get along? No. The Bible leads us to truth, but we understand tier one, tier two, and tier three. We're going to go through those in the, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but then, but we, we want to be a force of unity. Not unity for the sake of unity. Because if I'm lost and you're lost and we're not reconciled to God and we have unity, no one's going to heaven, right? But we want to have unity flowing out of the truth, unity on Christ, based on Christ. So um, the point is we've got to keep the main thing, the main thing, that the gospel has to be central. Not fight over these tertiary, uh, secondary, smaller things. Um, we have to be careful not to make, uh, to call things sin when they're not even sin. That, that's actually a preference. It's just a preference I have, but I'm going to call it sin. And now I'm teaching my kids that this is sin. If you would ever do this, this is sin. And then, then your pastor or the Bible, they come across, they're like, this is clearly not sin. Why did mom and dad teach us this was sin? That was my generation. And so uh, the, the uh, different uh, generations taught differently. And so also, um, there's only one right way to do things. What, whatever category that is, there's only one right thing. The Bible is clear on some things that there's only one right or wrong thing. But then there's a whole bunch of things that, we, that it, it's not saying. There's only one. There, there's 10. There's 100 ways you could do something. 
And all of them would be just as godly, just as acceptable to God, uh, just as biblical, but, but that's really hard for, uh, for a lot of people. Um, something that you'll notice I do a lot of times is I, I'm taking what's going on in the world in lost culture, and then I will bring up, here's the church's answer for that. Now, I'll call that churchy. I've got some stuff written about the idea of churchy. And what that means is it's not necessarily biblical, it's churchy culture in a response to what the world's doing. So you got the world's culture, and then there's this churchy idea, and some of us have been taught these things, how you dress, what you do, these little lists, and we have all these things. But then just like when Jesus actually had a lot of talk when he was going, hey, you've heard it said this, actually, here's the truth. Hey, you've heard this taught before by those Pharisees, by by those guys who are adding to God's law, actually, here's God's view on this. And so that's why I'm trying to do a lot of times is go from the world's culture, lost culture, philosophical thinking, and then show, hey, here's some churchy thinking that you may have grown up in, but actually, here's what the Bible says. Um, and so we're, we're, we want to be over there on the, the Bible, what the actual Bible truth is. Um, it often exposes churchy lists, and many times things that's not sin um, in the Bible, but, but church cultures um, look at. And so when you look at that, there comes in this idea, those, the confusion, the deception on saving faith. So misleading numbers of believers in America and the Bible Belt. Some reports try to say that 65% of America is Christian. 65%. That's just ridiculous. There's no way. So part of the reason they do that is they, they lump in Catholics, they lump in Protestantism, and then all forms of Protestantism. So if you understand, and if you come from a Catholic background, it can be very offensive, a lot of what Catholicism teaches is a works-based religion, right? So they have these different um, things where you can, you can pray your grandparents after they've passed away. They're in purgatory. They're in this holding cell, and they, they might not live a good enough life, but you know what? If you give enough money in the plate and you do these prayers for them who they're in this purgatory holding cell, you can remove them from purgatory over a matter of time, especially if you give a lot, and they get to go from purgatory to heaven. Is that salvation? Did, did they make a decision to follow Christ? No. No, that, that, that's completely wrong. There's all kinds of indulgences and things like that, praying to different, you pray to Mary and pray to different um, passed away humans. We don't do that. We pray to God, right? We pray to the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so um, they have all these works of faith. And so there's a great percentage of Catholicism that is a works-based religion. They, they pray, they use forms about God, they, they talk about the Bible sometimes. Now, it doesn't mean that all Catholics are unsaved. It's a great majority. And so when you lump that in with Protestantism and mainstream American thinking, a lot of people, millions, tens of millions, are not saved and think that they're saved. Um, you think through the liberal denominations and churches who did away with the Bible, who said, well, I know that the Bible says this, but it doesn't fit in 2000, doesn't fit in 2024. So the lifestyle that I'm going to live, I know the Bible talks against that, but, but, but God just didn't know we were going to progress didn't know that we were going to become enlightened. And so God's a little out of touch, old-fashioned. We're not living by those Old Testament things. So his views on manhood and womanhood, his views on the church, his views on the, man, that's 2,000 years old. That's 4,000 years old. That's 5,000 years We don't have to live by that anymore. It's what people, that's a liberal understanding. That, that's, that's saying this has got errors in it and God was kind of foolish. He's kind of getting in his old age and he didn't understand we were going to be caught up to him and smarter than him. And so that, that's some of the stuff that comes out in that. Um, 
Those are all the things that fit in with, there's a confusion, deception on saving faith. Um, the Bible Belt is a very tricky area um, because people get this self-checked. And when, you, when they do the surveys, are you a, are you a Christian? They, they'll, well, well, yeah, I haven't been to church in years. There's nothing in my life that shows I'm a Christian. I think I'm trying to be a good person. And if at the end of life, there happens to be a God that I've not worshipped or loved or had any devotion to my whole life, if he happens to show up after I pass away, I think I'll have to measure out then how good I was compared to how bad I was. And when I look around, I'm not doing all the things that really, really horrible people are doing. So I think I, that God will let me in based on how good I've done. That, that's the main idea of American thought, uh, that moral therapeutic deism. God is standing back as a deist. He, he created it, set in motion. He's just standing back as a deist God. Um, uh, uh, that he's, he's measuring stuff, and so it's our morals, and it very feels good. It's therapeutic for us to do good things. Moral therapeutic deism. And that's, that's just not Christianity. Now, there's no shepherding of souls. It's completely missing. And so all those things are the confusion and deception. Um, the second thing there is it, it's the current state of, of America, the current spiritual decline. A huge dropout, 40 to 50 million people that have just left the church in the last 10, 15 years. Um, 40 to 50 million people that left church. And you know what the qualifying mark is that 40 to 50 million was? Did you attend a church service once a month? Man, were they really solid believers? Were they someone that you could see or were truly following Christ? Is there a chance that a lot of those were, were not saved? Yeah. And so now, now is there abuses that happen in the church? Horrifically. Um, and so there's reasons that some true believers have left, but, but the great majority of those, they just weren't Christian. Um, so listen to this, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. In 2000, they had 5 million people. So this is the Evangelical Lutheran Church. 5 million people in 2000. They have 3 million in 2020, a 40% drop. The PCUSA Church, so that's Presbyterian USA, 58% drop. PCUSA, 58% drop. You know, there's two branches. There's the conservative branch and there's a the liberal branch of the Presbyterian Church. Um, the United Methodist Church, a 31% drop. Episcopal Church, which was formerly one of the most influential for decades in America, now they have half a million people, 500,000 people. They used to be one of the most influential. Um, the SBC, one of the largest denominations. In 2000, 17 million. And between 2000 and 2010, there was about 7 million baptisms. So they were setting at 17 million, 16.7 or 16.8. So around 17 million in 2000, add 7 million baptisms. 7 million people to their churches. But now in 2020, they're at 13 million. So they lost the 7 million that were baptized. They never come back to church. Were they truly saved? I don't know, but I bet you that they think they're going to heaven, right? They, they walked an aisle. They prayed a prayer in, in a seat. So all those things lead to a great opportunity. It's an attempt to, uh, it's an opportunity for us to be a faithful gospel presence, um, clarifying the gospel. When you put all those things together, um, um, Galatians 2.20, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Acts 17, Acts 1.8, uh, Matthew 22, Matthew 28, the great commandment, the great commission. You see, God's saving purposes are much more than just keeping you out of hell. It's that when he reconciled you, he reconciled you into a family. When, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into a local body of believers. You're, you're supposed to be held accountable. It's supposed to be growing. It's supposed to be discipled by that, that, that group of people. Um, so it gives parameters of who is pouring into your life and who you're pouring into. So that's Acts 17. God determined the times and places set for you. Um, 
It's not just an avoidance card, but a way of life-giving, flourishing beauty. It's a life of awareness of our own needs of the gospel and others' needs. It's an idea of what matters most, reconciliation, abiding and enjoying and exalting worship of the Creator. Um, So it's a life spreading His message of salvation and love and mercy and grace to to those around us. And so in the Acts 17 vein, um, remembering that this is a great opportunity to be a faithful gospel presence. Um, This week, many of you know, uh, two big things happened in football. So you had, um, first of all, um, Nick Saban just surprises everyone, Alabama's coach, and steps down as the the, um, head coach and says he's going into retirement. And then you have uh, Bill Belichick in the pro football as the um, New England Patriots uh, head coach. Just uh, he and they decided to part ways. They did it a real, uh, uh, really good, nice way to do that. To, well, they both uh, stepped aside. And so uh, he and the team, instead of doing a bad thing where you get fired or he gets angry and walks away. And so um, in that case, um, you've got to think through who, who passes the baton and what's the baton being passed in that. Um, you've got to think through as a coach, those guys know who they want in the game at the last minute. So you talk about the fourth quarter. You talk about with two minutes left, you've got Michael Jordan over here. You think you're going to devise a play for Michael Jordan? Or you think that you're, it just doesn't matter? You just, just pick somebody. No, you know who you want in the game. And so what I've brought up about Acts 17 is God doesn't have uh, Abe or Moses or David or Solomon or Paul or Peter in the game on the field towards the end. If this is truly towards the end times, he's got you and I. And if we're not careful, we, we, we're so busy pursuing just life and my own goals and my own desires that we, we set aside the, 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 the true identity that we have where God has placed us here for the sake of furthering his redemptive purposes. Um, it matters who gets the baton. It matters what the baton is that's being handed to them. Um, and I don't come to you on that to say like a lot of churches are they, what they do is hey they could turn Acts 17 is into a prideful thing like hey God thinks that we're greater than Paul God thinks that we're greater than Moses he has us in the no no don't go on pride go on humble faithful gospel presence we have the gospel God's called us to be faithful with that and to be present in people's lives that that should lead to greater humility we're not better than anyone else and so in that um, there's there's this opportunity that we have in First Chronicles twelve. Uh, this is when Israel, uh, the kingdom, when when Saul was the, the the leadership was being passed over, the the baton was being passed from Saul to David, and it says in uh, twelve thirty two, First Chronicles twelve thirty two, the men of Issachar, who understood the times and had knowledge of what Israel needed to do. So it's going through this list of all the um, twelve tribes of Israel, and it says, but but the men of Is- Issachar. And it has this little commentary about them. They understood the times and what needed to happen. That's what we're praying that the Spirit would do. So churches, when we go to look at what is the baton being passed on, here's three historical marks of the church, the true church. So all over the centuries, it's not, hey, what does your website look like? What does your stage look like? How good is your pastor? How charismatic and how great a communicator? How, how, how much stuff are you doing out there? That, that wasn't what measured the marks of a true church from, from 33 AD, when Jesus launched it, Acts 1-8 there, 
to 1900, 1950, basically, there were three marks of the church. The first one was just proclamation of the gospel, that every week you would hear clear gospel presentation. And not what I grew up with was like you could hear a sermon that was nothing about anyone's sin or your need for God or reconciliation with God or the gospel. It wasn't about that the whole sermon. It'd be about maybe three ways to make money in a, in a downsized economy or three, three points to have a good successful marriage or three ways to uh, do this or that. And everyone wants points. And then at the very end, the last two minutes, now, I've been talking about money. I've been talking about this. I've been talking about that. Now, everyone close your eyes, bow your heads. Now, we know that anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart will be saved. So repeat this after me. You just talked to me about money for 35 minutes. You talked to me about marriage for 35 minutes. You didn't talk to me about the gospel. So always before, it wasn't um, thinking through what do they want to hear. It was God's already told us what they need to hear. It's about the cross. And so um, correct proclamation and preaching of the gospel was always the deal, number one. Number two, there are three marks of the church. Correct administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You guys have probably been in places where um, people, if they do the Lord's Supper, so we make it a priority. We say this does matter. He gave us these two things. So we do the Lord's Supper every single week. He says, do this in remembrance, thinking of me often, right? And so with, with baptism, how many people have got baptized without ever asking them, do we really truly know that you're saved? Um, so here, like even when it's children, we have we had, we spent two or three hours with each family the last time we did baptisms, just talking to the parents, talking to the child, not asking the parents, "Hey, can you answer these questions for them?" No. And when the, we would talk with the kids, like, "Hey, so what what, what does it mean? What, what do you mean? Do you understand that 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 your sins were forgiven? What does that mean?" Uh, at other places, when we've talked to youth or teens or even some adults, when I kind of got into an area and realized, like, hey, I think that they're just baptizing kind of blindly, like not really thinking through that. No, no, correct handling of baptism in the Lord's Supper is significant. And so they guarded the table of the Lord's Supper. If you're a, if you're a non-believer, if you're out of fellowship with the Lord, you don't get to partake of the Lord's Supper with us this week this, the, until you're, you're repentant. And, so, and then also on baptism, hey, if you're not truly saved, then you're not going to be baptized. This is for believer's baptism. So that was always the case. Believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Correct administration of the ordinances. And then correct church discipline. So the, the formal day, days would be, you know, someone uh, come with some certain sin and they would, they would address it for a while and they would ta- have people around their lives and talk to them about, hey, this is clearly biblical. And if they said, no, no, I just don't feel like, I think this is one of those preferential things. This isn't really sin. And then you get a couple more people and like, hey, we're going to show you 30 to 60 places where this is clearly sin. And then that person goes, oh, okay, you've shown me it's sin, but man, I still like it. You've shown me it's sin, but I, this is just where I'm going to do I'm still going to do this. There's a process there in Matthew 18 that, that walks a person through that. Uh, and, it, and it starts just by loving relationships. Um, so, so correct church discipline. When it comes to the church, what's being passed on in our day? What's the baton that's being passed on? Pragmatic growth. If it works, do it to grow your church. Um, entertainment venues. Uh, political affiliation. Trying to uh, identify with a political power. Churches full of unsaved attenders hearing self-help messages. Hype instead of faithful formational truth. And then dead orthodoxy with, with no love, no spirit. So at Sojourn, we want to be gospel-centered and gospel-driven. Um, why is 
the true Jesus, the pure Jesus, just Jesus alone, why is that not sufficient anymore? Why do we have to give him a makeover to make him acceptable to people? Why is the pure gospel not acceptable anymore? So at Sojourn, I almost so that so I changed the sermon around because I was going into specifics about our DNA and our church. And I was like, I want to make sure that people understand what is the gospel. So I would have you think through, as I'm saying, faithful gospel presence in this area, for you to think through what is the gospel to me this week. You might write, just start a little two or three, four or five sentences. And then you might change it by Wednesday. By Friday, do it again. What is the gospel? Do I understand the gospel? Do I understand what being faithful to the gospel in my own life and then the gospel to others? What does it look like to be a, a presence with the gospel and being faithful in people's lives? Faithful gospel presence. Um, why is the pure gospel not sufficient? Um, what must every soul go through to be saved? That's those things I have about, first of all, any lost person. They've got to have conviction. They've got to have confession. They've got to have repentance. There will not be a person in heaven who's not repented and confessed their sins and, and had the, the Spirit do this work of regeneration in their soul. There's not going to be anyone there. For, for the growth of a believer, that all that leads to new life, regeneration that the Bible talks about, um, re, spiritual renewal where the Spirit breathes life. In them. And then there's this time of now you're resting in what Christ has done. You're not working and trying to earn your salvation or working trying to earn closeness to God. Jesus already gave you the closeness to God, his own righteousness. So you're resting in Christ, and now you're rejoicing. You have greater affections. You have greater worship. So in, in, Paul makes this very clear um, in 1 Corinthians 2 as we're closing up here. Um, he says this, uh, and this is where we will not compromise on the true Jesus or the true gospel. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and, or wisdom. Do you know there's pastors that they get their sermon script ready on Tuesday because they want to go through it 20 times. 20 times, and they have a crowd of people, and they have cameras, and then they go and watch, and they have the 20 people go, hey, you know, you said this, you were telling that funny story at this one point, and at the end, you didn't... Boom! And you didn't step right. You didn't say it right. You, you, you stood behind the thing too long. You moved around too much. You walked back and forth. You did these things. Uh, man, you, man you, you had this one story. You need to change the ending of this, study, this story to make it really powerful. And that's man's wisdom, isn't it? Hey, do we not believe the Holy Spirit can change people's hearts? Do we not believe that, that the Holy Spirit is more powerful than... 10 million men, 10 billion men and women working to connive and strategize? Do we not believe that the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is sufficient for that? And so Paul says, well, I came, I didn't come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much training. That sounds like a great leader. Three characteristics of great leadership, great growing churches, fear, trembling, weakness. See how many books that sells, right? That's what Paul's saying there. My speech was, and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that's in 1 Corinthians 2. Well, then you get to 1 Corinthians 15. At the first start of uh, the book, he says it was Christ and his cross. 
Jesus and him crucified. You get to the end in, in, in 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, the one that you received, in which you now stand. That's what's securing you, and by which you are being saved. That, that gospel, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's going, that gospel, that version of the gospel, that version of Jesus, not a manufactured one. And then he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So Paul's declaring, hey, there, there are matters of first importance. And so we want to be a church that says that true gospel, that version of Jesus, that's what we're going to cling to. Um, faithful gospel presence. As we, as we close, I want you to think through um, the things that that looks like. That's, that's being faithful for you. So each man, each woman, am I being faithful to God, faithful to Christ? Am I faithful if you have a husband or a wife? Am I faithful to my spouse and my children? Am I faithful to um, the body of believers around me? That one sometimes gets kind of kicked out, even though family kind of gets kicked out sometimes. Uh, and, and then the fourth area is, Faithful as a steward. So, so it's not work defines me. Remember we talked about this last week? Your, your, your identity is not wrapped up in your work, your career, your status, your position. No, I see that as God gifted me in certain things. I'm thinking through eternal matters, and I, I work as a steward to help provide for my family, and part of that is for to giving to others and generosity, not so I can store up in the American dream, American way, right? So we went through that last week. And so in that, in that vein, I'm a steward. I'm also a steward of my children. Uh, they, they were given to me. They're, they're, they're beautiful gifts, but they're not just mine. No, no, I, God has blessed us with our children. And so I, my role is being faithful with my children towards God, faithful with my finances towards God, faithful with my, my wife, my husband, my marriage towards God, faithful in my own walk towards God. So faithfulness. Are we going to be faithful? Gospel presence. You better understand the gospel and know how to get the gospel into people's lives. And then you're pr just being present. We're going to speak about being present next week. So I uh, had an overview of the mission statement that we're going to cover next week, um, but we want to be a faithful gospel presence. Here's the walkaways this morning. Um, first of all, just God has purposed you. I'm sorry. Uh, God has purposed you would be alive in the, at this moment in time. What will you make your life about, him or yourself? Then are you living by some of the most basic and general directing scriptures? Great commandment, great commission. Is that part of your identity? Or is that something that twice a year when the church has an event, you feel like, oh, we're going to help out with the church then. I'm going to go and do that then. Or is it that your whole identity is wrapped in that? And then third, what is this the Jesus that you pass along to others? Because you're passing on, you're discipling people around your life. You're, you're showing and revealing them to them, whether, whether you try to take them into a book or get a whiteboard and, and show them, here's what I believe, you're showing them what you believe about Jesus. You're showing them, you're discipling people all the time. And then what's the gospel that you abide by and pass on to others? Think through those last couple of questions this week as we um, look at these next couple of weeks on the DNA of our church. But I wanted to make sure that we understood that the solid, and I didn't want to look over this and assume that, that we're going to be gospel-centered, gospel-driven. We're going to understand the true gospel. And that's not only just, just to get you saved, it's also what is, uh, as, so getting saved is one thing through the gospel, sanctifying you with the gospel also, your, your growth in Christ. 
So not just justification before God, but sanctification, learning how the gospel applies. We're going to be big about that. We're going to be big about Christ alone, that he is worthy of our time and our worship. 